0: Nancy Chen is a professor of anthropology at the University of California in Santa Cruz, California. Her new book is Food, Medicine, and the Quest for Good Health. Thank you for joining me, Nancy. Thanks so much for inviting me. Nancy, tell us a little bit about your history, because it's pertinent to the subject of this book, isn't it? Especially where you grew up and what you ate.
1: <laughs> well, um, thanks for asking. Um, I grew up in Louisiana, and in, I consider it as uh, almost impossible to avoid food as well as being Chinese-American. So uh, simply by these two frameworks and food ways, that greatly impacted my thinking about food.
0: When you grew up in New Orleans, you didn't just have uh, the food mom's recipes you
1: had they let you eat anything <laughs> <laughs> actually i grew up in baton rouge oh, okay uh, but we did go to new orleans quite a bit and um the funny thing is yes my parents being immigrants we were they were very curious about uh every possible food there was and so they were very very lenient they never said don't eat this don't eat that they were just very good about you know letting us try everything which i think is quite amazing
0: now, you had a lot of regional Chinese food and, and, and mom's recipes, and, and your mother had her own form of nutritional therapy, like all mothers, really.
1: That's right, although I, I used to think that my mom was extreme or, or unique, and then I realized that this was perhaps her way of taking care of not just me but our entire family, that dietary therapy or nutritional therapy was a very significant component of what she thought it meant to, to care for the family.
0: I'd like you to talk about something, and this is a note that came out of my uh, little tiny brain when reading this introduction, was uh, cooking the cure.
1: I think that very frequently when we, in English, talk about taking medicine, when one takes medicine, it implies a very, even though it's an active practice, uh, it's prescribed by someone, as opposed to cooking the cure is all about, in Chinese, there's this notion you eat your medicine. And so cooking is a very significant component of producing not just medicine but healing foods.
0: One of the things that that we we you to start out with is, and I think this is, is very interesting is that just the difference in that's verbs is between taking medicine and eating food. It really indicates a very, very different uh, uh cultural perception of each of these things now, but that wasn't always true, was it.
1: Precisely. I think that eating versus eating medicine, it may sound very unusual in English, In English, but I think in many languages around the world, there's a very different perception of how one is supposed to consume medicine. Here in English, we, as I just mentioned, we take medicine, but just how you frame, how you think about medicine says a lot about that category.
0: Now, you go back in time, way back in time, and tell us about a couple of different uh, the origins of our medical practice—Hippocrates uh, and uh, Sun Mao both talked about herbal medicine and food as medicine—and and it was really for them, it was—it was a continuum, wasn't it?
1: Absolutely. In many ways, uh, food was really the front line of medicine. There was no separation between food or medicine. There was really a broad continuum, and if one became ill, one's dietary practices were scrutinized very carefully.
0: Now. Uh, Moving forward, we we come to World War II and and Margaret Mead, and and she talked about something we talk about now. uh, Food is national security, and that was a really interesting perception shift for for us in the United States, wasn't it?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I think in the immediate post-World War II period, when Margaret Mead was asked to serve as advisor on national nutrition, she really was concerned about the hunger becoming lost as food became, the the whole notion of food security came to become a national security issue. And she was the one who was really the one voice in the public basically saying, hey, don't forget, we, we do have hunger as well. We need to address this as a very significant issue.
0: This is uh, around the time when we went from an eat more to an eat less culture. And part of that was with the, the Finnish government, <laughs> not, not necessarily the the where you think of as a leading edge of uh, dietary practices.
1: Actually, in that one section of the book, this is the work of Marion Nestle, who is a mm-hmm. very leading food scholar, food studies scholar. And she tracks the interventions that the American government has taken in transforming Eat More you know, in the pre-World War II period to the post-war period, where there was this recognition that the need to eat less was very important. The Finnish government did something very interesting, because they were very good at immediately enacting Eat Less as well as trying to transform their dietary guidelines to try to reduce cardiovascular disease. So they actually encouraged their scientists to develop this margarine that was perhaps healthier than than the butter.
0: One of the things you talk about, going back in time again, um, religions have always been, Placed a big had a played a big part in, in our food and our medical culture by by virtue of the pr- proscriptions, what it was healthy and good what was what God meant us to eat
1: yeah and that's really that's the part that I find very fascinating in all the major religions as well as different spiritual practices around the world they had very specific notions of morality tied to different types of food. So some religions might be very prescriptive about avoiding meat. Other religions might be, or spiritual practices might be prescriptive and say, well, you should consume some types of flesh but not others, or consume only plants. So <laughs> there is a a great deal of morality linked to consumption and spiritual practice. And I also
0: thought it was really interesting about how much a culture informs what we eat and when we eat it. I, I mean, to me, the idea of... Of getting up and having um, like nood- hot noodles for breakfast was really weird. I went to Singapore and they have you know they had a, a brunch or, or you know a, a what they call a continental breakfast and it looked like dinner to me.
1: That's right, and the, it's very interesting because I think given the American diet of breakfast cereals, we presume that breakfast, lunch, and dinner have very specific prescribed food items, and so the notion of savory, if they aren't eggs or you know say toast then it might be considered to be very, very different. So cultural frameworks are very important in how we think about food and what are appropriate foods to consume at particular times.
0: The other part culture plays is is who gets to eat and when. (laughs) And and we, we we all sit down and, you know, eat eat as fast as possible before anybody else gets the food, but that's not always the case.
1: That's right. And for instance, just simply in continental Europe, there are notions about, for instance, children eat first and then the adults can eat much later versus in other cultures, it might be that the elders eat first and then perhaps the children. So it really depends on the cultural context. And as an anthropologist, I try to help us understand that it's not simply what we eat, but also where and when.
0: But there are things that... that we, that at least, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat what they call the sky prawn, which is a, a locust. And you're not just not going to eat that. And, and we're also not supposed to generally eat one another, although there are, have been exceptions.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's fascinating because taboos are very much more revealing about the culture than it is about what is really edible or inedible. I uh, teach a, regularly teach a course on culture through food, and so I have a uh, a whole section on taboo and avoidances. And of course, I have a separate lecture just on cannibalism, and I talk about the three types of cannibalism. So <laughs> So yes, you know one will have different you know reactions or responses to w- certain foods. And that squeamish quality is really, I think, the fact that you've incorporated very specific notions about what's edible, and what's not.
0: Well, we we'll get back to cannibalism. What, tell us about the three kinds of cannibalism. <laughs> I
1: mean. uh, well, I didn't. Uh, well, um, what I've learned, uh, I describe it as um, there's endo cannibalism, exo cannibalism, and um, what I kind of the third is what I call the Hannibal Lecter kind of gourmet <laughs> cannibalism. But um, uh, h- historically. Um, when we look at certain parts of the world, uh, the Aztecs, uh, for instance, are reportedly reported to have practiced cannibalism, but it was a very specific form. It wasn't simply your neighbor or your family member. It was your enemy. It was the, the notion that in a ritual, this was very significant of you know incorporating the, the spirit of your enemy. But it was also, um, some scholars have argued that this was a way to provide protein um, in a very militaristic culture. Indo-cannibalism, certain... Practices have been discovered and no lo- have been discontinued. But in um, certain areas of Papua New Guinea, Indo-cannibalism was really pre- specifically the consumption of a relative who was deceased and was to give honor to, to that relative. It fa- fell along gender lines. And so, for instance, uh, Carlton Gajusek, who won the Nobel Prize, who discovered early uh, cases of, um, I forgot the disease now, um but the, Jacob syndrome? Uh, yes, yeah, CJ CJS, thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and what he discovered was basically that this had to do with you know specific cultural practices of uh indo-cannibalism.
2: (音楽) ¶¶
0: One thing you point out, and I think this is really, really interesting, that I never thought about that, is with regards to smell. Medicine in our culture has no smell, it never does a smell.
1: Well, that's the thing that's amazing. It's that we, in this society or, or in biomedicine at least, we're led to believe that medicine should have no smell or no taste. There's a lot of effort to given to trying to cover up the bitter taste. And so, for the, you know, in the earlier, say, 19th century, um, sugar was used as a way to literally make the medicine more palatable. But if you you know say in Chinese medicine, medicine is supposed to be bitter. It's supposed to be pungent. It's supposed to have fragrances that you might not appreciate or uh, it's not associated with the everyday notions of what's delicious. So there is this expectation that herbal medicines or other types, forms of medicine may, may not be what you would normally want to pick out as a dessert, for instance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> One of the things you talk about, too, that I found really interesting, it, and this comes back again and again, I think, throughout your work, is, are the humors. That Tell us a little bit about the humors. We'll bring them back throughout the ages, but yes. tell, tell us where they start and, and what they are.
1: Well, the humors are specific properties given to either human bodies or plants or animals. These are features that are associated. could be, for instance, wet, heat, dry, and I forgot the fourth one. But these are specific properties that the bodies have. And when you fall ill, you might have certain humors that are out of balance. So humoral medicine was a principle that you find both in Hippocratic medicine as well as traditional Chinese medicine
0: tell us a little bit about uh, uh, shi, shi liao and his idea of food therapy and this was a long time ago i mean it's what interests me a lot is that uh, we're coming back to some of these ideas and going wow that was they were right <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> shi liao is the mandarin term for dietary therapy and it basically is associated with a number of of medicinal practitioners. Uh, Sun Miao who was the perhaps the most famous medical practitioner, was someone who believed that if you fell ill, you needed to radically change your diet. And it's linked to the humors insofar as if one is overheated, one should consume cooling foods, or vice versa. If one is too cold, then heating foods or foods with heating properties such as ginger would be prescribed. One one
0: food that uh... Food specific recipe that comes back again and again cures all ills, rice porridge. Tell us about <laughs> rice porridge. You must have had a lot of rice yes, porridge as a child. Yes.
1: And actually, at the book reading tonight, I'm going to be serving rice porridge. Um, the part of the reason why I'm chuckling about this is because uh, uh, as a young child, uh, whenever I got a fever or got a cold, uh, my mom would immediately cease whatever food I was consuming and just say, okay, you know, this you have to eat rice porridge. And you, you can only imagine, you know, when my friends were all able to continue to eat hamburgers or hot dogs or pizza um, <laughs> or a jambalaya for that matter. I would protest and go, why is this? She says, this is what you have to do to get better. And uh, if I got a little bit better, then she might gradually increase the consistency. So it would begin with a very thin gruel and graduate up to you know something closer and closer to wet rice. If I were lucky, she might let me add a little bit of soy sauce, but not until I was fully well. So the irony of rice porridge, as I might mention in, in my book, is the fact that later on in graduate school, when I asked a friend what she was doing research on, And she was actually conducting research on the WHO practice of oral rehydration therapy. I said, what is that? And she says, well, they basically feed infants, you know, with diarrhea rice gruel. (laughs) And so that's why I thought, oh, I guess my mom was right after all.
0: (laughs) Now, um, spices were not originally necessarily meant to spice things up, were they?
1: No. Well, spices were a commodity. This was... uh, very much part of the, you know, flourishing spice trades that has animated world trade, very early on. But the I think that gradually, as different cultures came to become familiar or become integrated into that world system, spices did become part of various diets or cultural food ways. One spice
0: that's particularly important is is cinnabar. So tell us a little bit, distinguish between cinnabar cinnamon and cassia? Uh, Ke-
1: yeah, well, well, this is actually in the section that where I talk about longevity. And uh, it's interesting, in um, Taoists in ancient China were obsessed with longevity, and they really believed that consuming particular elements might enhance longevity. And so cinnabar was reportedly to be one of these substances that could actually enhance long life. It's quite different than cinnamon. However, historically there have been some, you know, overlap where, you know, some people presume that that's the same thing, but they're they're quite different things. And cassia is another substance that is sim- similar to cinnabar where it's also associated it has properties in Chinese medicine to extend life.
0: One tradition that comes up and I think stays around, keeps coming back, is the ascetic tradition. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, actually, the ascetic. Uh, if you look at uh, different spiritual practices around the world, what and this is related to the section on longevity, um, mm-hmm. that many ascetics actually renounce not not so much renounce food, but sometimes drastically reduce food, and so it wasn't the consumption of a lot of food, but it was actually the the decrease. Uh, consumption of food
0: the eat eat less food diet boy now whoever would have thought of that (laughs) um uh now you talk about the centenarians, and I think that's really fascinating uh, about the, these pockets of people who tend to live to more than 100. Somebody claimed to live to 168 years old.
1: That's right. And so these days, I think so far, the I think the oldest documented age is 120 or 121. Uh, Jean Calmet, a French woman who had the birth records to prove it, the person who was reportedly lived to 168, there was no way to... They, they had no birth certificates back then, so it was very difficult to prove his age. However, he did, I think, have five or six generations after him, so that was one, one uh, way in which he uh, talked about his old age. But centenarians have very much been a part of scientific interest in anti-aging, where they are constantly searching for how is it possible for specific pockets of people in the world to live to very, very long uh, years.
0: This brings us to uh, the Shangri-La diet, which is not not just cuisine. It's culture, isn't it?
1: Yes, it's culture insofar, and this is why I'm very concerned. You know, when my editor asked me, you know, could I give some recipes, I was very, very hesitant because I didn't want this to be a how-to book or a diet book. You know, I was very concerned Mm -hmm. about making sure that when people think about diet, it's part of a broader cultural framework. And so the the Shangri-La diet is... You know, very simply, you know, yogurt, apricots, um, uh, the, the water, mineral waters from, from that region. And it's important to realize that it wasn't just the food. It was also the activity that uh, went along with it, that people lived very simple lives, kept agricultural hours, and had a lot of physical activity in their daily life.
0: about the DSHEA and supplements and all this big foo for We had the ephedra scare. Um, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, uh, DSHEA was an uh, act that um, uh, is very controversial. Uh, it is the, what is it, the Dietary and Supplement Health Education Act. Um, to go back and look at my book, sorry, I don't have it in front of me. But uh, this was a ruling that came out in 1979. And this no, not 1970, 1989. And it had a huge impact um, on the use of supplements as well as um, herbal medicines. And very simply, it used to be that the FDA said you had to prove that a drug was effective in order for a drug to be approved. What DeShay did was to show that with supplements and herbal medicines, it had to show that there was no harm. And the ruling was that these items were considered in the category of food rather than drugs. And so, because it's in a separate category, it was not held to the same standard um, as say what you have the hoops that you have to go through to get a drug approved.
0: Well, this is this is fascinating because it fits right into your spectrum from food to medicine. Here's something that we've created. To fill that gap, it right, right in between.
1: Absolutely, and um, I think uh, the other element that we need to think about is not just a shade, but also what is now uh, referred to as the Codex Elementarius. This is something oh, that the-, the CAC. What a bad idea! <laughs> <for> <laughs> <Right>? a <name. laughs> it's a very interesting name, but I just call it the Codex. Uh-huh. Um, but this is a, a, a series of hearings that are ongoing right now. That carried out by the UN um, and WHO to try to harmonize uh, to make sure that what we call a, a food or drug in this country means the same thing as in another country. So you can only imagine in the realm of supplements, there's a lot of concern and debate. You know, there. I think in this country, when I was uh, looking up coverage of this, consumers were very concerned that it might mean that they would no longer be able to uh, purchase vitamin supplements, for instance, that these might be banned. In fact, that's not true. That's really a myth, but. Um, the codex is going to be a very interesting process by which um, new categories of food and medicine are going to be emerging.
0: So the black helicopters won't be taking my vitamin C away? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I, I like this word you use, harmonize. It's really in, an interesting term. Is this in use, in play? When there, the, Are the codex people using this word?
1: Uh, well, this is actually, uh, we see harmonization um, going on in a, non, a number of different industries. This is when there has to be some sort of, not necessarily balancing act, but making sure that categories or definitions are equivalent. And, and that's in the industry, the world of industry. This is That's what it re- refers to. Within anthropology, Laura Nader, who's a professor of anthropology at Berkeley, wrote about harmony. Uh, she's a legal anthropologist, and she talks about harmony as a legal and cultural concept that is really about control.
0: That's really interesting. Um, of course, it's complicating if the food and medicine were not complicated enough— We've brought in a brand new complication which are GMOs genetically modified organisms, and there's no escaping that right now. I mean you everywhere everything that's is, right is there that's everywhere right.
1: that's right And what I argue in this book is that uh, what's fascinating about GMOs is that we consume so many GM foods um, already if we consume processed foods, you know over a third of processed foods you know have some you know uh, element of GM food item in there. Uh, However, we haven't really talked about GM drugs, and that's actually um, genetically modified drugs or drugs that are uh, somehow modified. And my belief is that because we already consume pharmaceuticals that are chemically produced in a laboratory, we don't think anything of, say, something that might be genetically enhanced or modified. Whereas uh, GM foods, however, tend to be, there's a very grave protest and concern, um, mostly originating from Europe as well as uh, here from the U.S. And in my book, I talk about how countries like India and China are you know, really concerned about population issues and making certain decisions about producing GM foods to make sure that there's enough, returning again to the issue of food security.
0: Right. Well, I, I thought it was interesting how much uh, genetically modified food was... T- how big that was in china i just we just had no idea
1: that's right and uh greenpeace of course has been tracking this um it's actually when we talk about gm foods um the um, american agricultural system is the world's largest producer of gm foods so china is only producing a you know a minuscule you know ten uh, percent relative to the u.s but but it is increasing and it's because it's partly facing a um a broader concern about population increase
0: of course, the food security issue with GM crops cuts both ways because they're particularly vulnerable. If there's something that will kill a GM crop, it will kill the entire GM crop in one quick swath, and you that's have right. no survivors, and you don't even have any seeds left. Right,
1: right. And that's actually, um, I didn't get to write about this in my book, but uh, you know, the uh, what I call the Noah's Ark or the seed crypt in Norway, it's just fascinating because what they've decided to do is literally archive every seed of every living plant and it's buried you know under you know these um, polar you know glacial <laughs> in, in under these glacial vaults and it would be a wonderful um, I would love to do a trip there just to visit the vault
0: <laughs> that sounds really fascinating um it surprises me how, how much uh, uh soy is is Grown in America, I would that's something I never would have expected.
1: That's right. And it's uh, not just the United States, but also increasingly across Central America and now South America. So um, part of the deforestation that's taking place of the Amazon uh, is related to the transformation of these forests to uh, land that's cultivated for soy.
0: Now, uh, tell us about farming spelled with a P-H. What is it? <laughs>
1: Well, um, I talk about farming in, um, in the chapter on GMOs, and uh, this is related to the um, earlier point I brought up about G- um, uh, GE drugs or genetically modified drugs. Uh, farming is uh, one example might be f- so for instance, in Australia, they have been uh, cultivating spinach crops that um, have, uh, say, antibiotics in there. So literally the notion of "eat your spinach, um, <laughs> it'll make you well is going to be uh, going to have a very different meaning um, altogether.
0: Now, you you talk about uh, uh, GE insulin and and heparin and and some perceived problems with them. Now, what I don't get, I mean, isn't insulin insulin? I mean, if it's insulin, it's it's a chemical, and it's got these little atoms all lined together. How could the GM version be different from another version?
1: Um, I think there's been some concern about uh, GM insofar as uh, allergenicity, Mm -hmm. where it's not Proven yet in human clinical trials whether or not increased allergenicity is going to you know be uh, a result of GE drugs. So there's there is that concern about GE insulin, although it is has been in use, it has been in production, mm-hmm. and um, but there is this concern that, that there's not enough conclusive evidence.
0: And one of the things that that this uh, idea of like you antibiotics and spinach and stuff it really like is uh, finally as you point out the ultimate inversion (laughs) of where we started way back with Hippocrates and Sun Mm Si Mao of mm -hmm. food as medicine and in this case, the, the medicine is in the food.
1: That's right. And so much of, what um, I think, what anthropologists talk about is the fact that, you know, we have these categories. But uh, what's interesting are when these categories become blurred or when the boundaries between them become blurred. And so, you know, what we, when we look at nutraceuticals in which, you know, the medicine is in the food or, or, or the food is in the medicine, uh, it's precisely pointing out the fact that, well— you know, there are consequences. And so simply saying having uh, food be your medicine, um, it, it can really transform, you know, how you eat and how you ultimately medicate.
0: And I, I think one of the things I, I, I really love about this book is um, your perceptions throughout the book really pull us back. From you know the individual act of eating and the individual act of, of taking medicine, and give us this this uh, perception that 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 it really is it's an anthropological activity, something that humans do, not just something you know I've got to eat. It, it's it's not just science; it's culture.
1: That's right, and it's also uh, we live to eat. It's not that we eat to live, but <laughs> it is very much we're social beings. We um, are we we don't live by ourselves we you know live in in a world and that's the important part to realize that we our ideas about how we eat and where we eat with whom we eat these are all things that are very much shaped by our culture
0: i've been speaking with nancy chen her new book is food medicine and the quest for good health thank you for joining me nancy
1: thank you so much for inviting me it's been a pleasure
0: Sarah Powers leads yoga retreats throughout the United States, Asia, and Europe. She's published two instructional DVDs, Yin and Vinyasa, and Insight Yoga. Her new book is Insight Yoga. Thank you for joining me, Sarah.
3: Thank you for being interested in having me here.
0: Sarah, tell me a little bit about some of the luminaries in this field who inspired you. In the the introduction, we hear about Hiroshi Motoyama, Yoshio Manaka. James Oshman, and of course, uh, your I guess your mentor or yogi, uh, Paul Grilly. Tell us a little bit about these people and where they sit in relation to you and then where you would sit in relation to us.
3: Well, I was influenced by Paul Grilly uh, years and years ago because we were both teaching at a yoga school in California. And he was at that time studying a lot of Dr. Hiroshi Motoyama's translated books and he's a Japanese master and went over to Japan and learned from him personally and was also studying a lot of yoga principles and doing a yoga practice and I was going into his classes when I was free after my own teaching and there was a very quiet contemplative atmosphere he was creating where he would put himself in certain shapes and those in the class were invited to just copy him. And when he moved, we moved, which sometimes was 20 minutes later. And I found that extremely provocative, highly uh, challenging. And yet there was something that it was triggering in me in terms of being interested in discovering why I was so uncomfortable, not just with my body, but with my mind states. And I moved away from California, as did Paul, and I went off and had uh, influences from other Buddhist teachers and my own yoga practice, and found that those seeds of investigation that he had really helped me uncover in those initial years, began to really guide me into wanting practices that would allow me to question what it was that was uh, important in terms of being intimate with my experience, with my body, with with various mind states. And the Buddhist teachings, I think, really gave me a vocabulary for that. They gave me uh, inroads through practices that let me understand my own mind. Through experiencing long-held yoga poses, I blended what I was learning in the Buddhist schools with my own yoga practice, and eventually went to Japan as well and studied with Dr. Motoyama, who is an amazingly uh, awakened yogi who understands the energy body very intimately, is a healer, a Shinto priest, and a scientist. So he's a man of many talents, also a father with five children. So he's someone who's in the world and who's someone that's very much an ascetic inside himself. And he's influenced me very much because of bringing the additional mapping of chinese medicine to the yogic understanding and to zen buddhism of which all three he's very um deeply um, dedicated so where i am is really wanting to carry the torch of what i've learned from paul what paul has learned from many as well as dr motayama and add to it, I suppose, from my perspective, the trainings in mindfulness meditation in the psychological realm that I've studied in transpersonal psychology. So I would say that, for me, insight yoga is a blend of yoga, Buddhism, Chinese medicine, and transpersonal psychology.
0: Well, well, tell me, what what is transpersonal psychology? I I don't know.
3: (laughs) It's uh, the blend of the wisdom traditions from the East with traditional psychological understanding and mapping of personality development. So it's understanding how the personality self can become healthier and heal the wounds of mistreatment and of being raised in ways where we didn't have empathic others really honoring some of our needs. And as well, it's understanding that there's a ground of being within one that it transcends the ego personality that is more of a, a universal or what you could call the the spirit that most Eastern traditions speak to. So it's a blend of you know, two very diverse subjects.
0: Well, that's really fascinating. Now, um, one of the things, this book is, as you say, is, is written with uh, three approaches. I really like what uh, Mr. Grilly said in the uh, in the introduction, that you in comparing it to hearing, you know, uh, a, a Latin, German, and English uh, terms all referring to it's the same kind of aspects of medicine, and, and the three approaches are Taoist, Buddhist, and Sanskrit. Is that correct?
3: Right. Those would be interwoven words that, instead of translating, they're appropriate at different times.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, um, y- you begin this book with ants. Asking the first question that came to my mind, when I hear yoga, I think of Yogi Bear. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Too many, so uh, yeah, a you, very cool,
3: calm cat
0: yeah. <laughs> or bear, we should say. Your bear, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but you ask and answer to the question: What is yoga? So, so tell us what what is yoga.
3: You know, it has a lot of meanings to different people now that it's become such a popular term. Mm-hmm. But I think of it as an introspective path of self-transformation. And one who practices yoga is called a, a yogini, if you're female or a yogi, one who's dedicated to this path, utilizes various practices to integrate and enhance the body, breath, and mind. And I've found that there are many, many lineages and thousands of practices And what I utilize are practices that really help me feel connected daily to what I would call kind of turning on the lights inside, to being awake and aware at the level of the physical and energetic body, being current or attuned to the emotional body, and being kind of crisp and clear in the mental body that these layers of our being are all interdependent and yet they're distinct aspects of experience that we can turn our attention to and grow in awareness of and that is a yogic path of awareness.
0: And this is the unified but separate simple presence?
3: Yes, which presence is a quality of knowing these layers of your being simultaneously Mm -hmm. and all of the changing details within each area. I mean your body has lots of sensations pulsing through it at any moment. Your energy body has more of a a a kind of um, radiance, so it's either dull or bright, and the emotional body of course has lots of feelings, and the mental body has mind states, sometimes quiet, sometimes like a crowded closet. So these are all doors of perception about any given moment. I can see the world through my mental experience. I could see it from how I'm feeling. Or I could be completely caught up in experiencing it from whether or not my body feels sick or well. And so to really be integrated is to have a full spectrum of attention that can incorporate all these various levels without feeling the need to struggle with any particular dimension. And that is very challenging and requires a committed practice.
0: N- now, y- you talk about um, one of the things I liked is that you explain that uh, it, it's a <coughs> that yoga is an attempt to relax the paradoxes, and the word itself mm. comes from yoking.
3: Yes, yoga is a word that is often translated as integrating or union, with the idea that we are not intrinsically fractured, but our experience is one in which we are not connected to the various dimensions of our being. And yoga is a way of bringing that connection into conscious awareness. So polarities of mind-body, of uh, feeling versus thinking, of even simple physical feelings of lightness versus heaviness, of really being able to be attuned to these dualities <clears throat> excuse me, seeming dualities in a way that's encompassing of the, um, the way they are, are held in a, a complementarity between them. So we wouldn't feel softness if we didn't know what hardness meant. And so instead of feeling like we only prefer a certain thing, yoga is a way of really attuning your attention to the variations and at the same time knowing the distinctions.
0: One of the things I think that's really interesting about your book and your approach, is how it really allows the uh, reader and the individual to, to customize it. I think that we're, we it's not a, it's more a set of guidelines than a prescription.
3: Yes. And I think the more we study and are influenced by other teachers, that's why even if someone has my book and yet their teacher has a, a very different mapping, that they'll simply have more tools to draw from. And the exposure can really widen what we choose to use at any given moment so that we're appropriate and skillful with ourselves. And that's only grown with my devotion to the path through the last few decades. I may have been stronger at 19 when I was practicing yoga. I may have had a quicker time uh, healing because of having a younger body. But my exposure to the variety of teachings, and my sensitivity and kindness that's grown to how I treat myself has made me a much more advanced practitioner on the inside, even if I'm no longer doing the very gymnastic advanced practices that I enjoyed jumping through when I was very young.
0: Tell me about homeostasis. Uh, How do we achieve that? And why?
3: <laughs> well, similarly to this discussion we're in now, you know, having the capacity to make certain choices that allow the inner organs to have uh, an ability to have an ongoing sense of equilibrium between them, since they're all interdependent, to have a connection between the body and mind, so that I'm not split off and living from the neck up, and being able to actually feel into how the sense doors are constantly bombarded by stimulus and how there's this organism here, me, who's in relationship to the environment all the time. And so homeostasis is kind of drawing from that term, it's more biologically based, in a more psychosomatic way. How can there be a sense of interdependence where I'm connected to my inner experience and at the same time intimate with what's going on in my environments around me where I can stay alive to the feeling tones in you that are emanating out of you right now and not at the same time feel like in relating to you that I have to disconnect from me that broadening of intimacy with inner and outer until there's not so much distinction between inner and outer There's a complementarity of engagement. That, to me, creates a, a sense of immense freshness and vitality in ordinary moments. And that kind of homeostasis, that kind of undulating, breathing in life and breathing out intelligence, was modeled to me from teachers and struck me as the only way to really live
0: this brings us to some of the meditation that we have at the back of the book, mm-hmm. the Buddhist meditation and because a lot of this a lot of what you say reminds me of many of the writers I've talked to who are Buddhists or you know, immersed in Buddhist tradition, mm-hmm. talk about this ability to embrace opposites mm-hmm. and, and, and embrace paradox even, mm-hmm. tell us about your, how your meditation techniques help us do that
3: There's a way that we can work with what is arising and influence it in a positive direction. So in yoga practices, if we're feeling scared or feeling a little uh, stuck inside, we can slow down our breath and that automatically stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system which sends signals through the whole body to relax and digest our experience. And so this style of changing the inner atmosphere through applying a technique can be very appropriate and uh, a wholesome addition to how we behave in any given moment. But it's a particular aspect of our intelligence that is moving towards change, manipulating the moment in a direction that would make us feel better. There's another aspect of our intelligence that doesn't actually interfere with our experience. But mindfulness techniques actually help us listen and participate in feeling the moment without directing any aspect of change so that we can garner some understanding of the intrinsic nature of change itself. Oftentimes, we think that in order to be happy this moment, I need to hold on to what's pleasant or push away what is starting to make me feel unpleasant. And those motivations constantly move us out of being alive and accepting to the moment in how it is. So Buddhist meditation techniques help us discover that part of why we're struggling or suffering is not so much in the pain itself or in the situation being challenging. It's in our resistance to what's happening, our struggle with the situation. And so if we take our attention and put it on the resistance rather than the object of what we're resisting, the resistance itself starts to fade Because the attention that was fed into resistance is now going into investigation. And as we investigate, let's say, just a pain in our hip while we're sitting still, instead of moving to try to get rid of the pain and make ourselves feel better, if we relax our struggle with the pain, it's interesting how the pain may be no less strong, But the mind is no longer at odds with the pain because it's simply observing how pain operates, how it fluctuates, how it moves. And so what seemed like this very permanent, hard experience is now a porous, interesting event called pain.
0: Uh, this reminds me uh, a couple of days ago I talked with a guy named uh, Marty Horowitz and he had a book called A Course in Happiness
2: mm-hmm. and,
0: and this reminds me uh, of his idea that when you're experiencing a, a, you know, negative emotions that one of the ways to engage yourself is to step back and look at them with awe and oh wow I can't even believe I could feel that
3: way mm, I like that and that is one of the aspects that uh, I speak about in the book is how you know life is a state of mind, and we are so identified with our emotional states. And instead of ignoring them, splitting off from them, or trying to only have the positive side of emotions, since that's impossible, we are going to constantly experience the full spectrum growing in our emotional intelligence and our emotional adaptability and inclusiveness means we're going to have to explore the ways in which we struggle and suffer and those actually become portals into deeper understanding so they become invitations of discovery and that's i think what this author horowitz was meaning they become this kind of genuine sense of wonderment like oh look what's here look what's visiting me now what is this really like What is it like in my body to experience fear instead of be acting out from fear or feel completely blinded by fear? What is it like to be fearful consciously? And so a meditation practice is a time when we suspend behaving from the emotions or the mind states and instead we investigate them. And what's required is that we have curiosity. Because without curiosity, we're going to assume that how we are interpreting the moment is completely appropriate. And often it's so skewed because it's through the filters of our likes and dislikes. And so a practice which helps us acknowledge our biases and then temporarily suspend acting out from them, helps us get to know ourselves in ways that moving towards making change happen won't allow us that, that depth of insight. And so we need more stillness practices so we can see our craziness and start to see that there's also wisdom in the seeing.
0: I've been speaking with Sarah Powers. Her new book is Insight Yoga. Thank you for joining me, Sarah.
3: Thank you so much. This has been very enjoyable.